Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me as always, he is the man who played Max in the 2010 movie Hard Breakers, directed by Leah Sturgis. Stephen Tobolowski, Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. I, the main thing I remember about Hard Breakers was that uh, it was we were shooting right next to a gardening store, and there were all sorts of flying insects uh, outside <laughs> my trailer that were drawn to the tomato plants. David, it's it's nothing but the high life when when you're in a movie like Heartbreakers, and and you're playing a small recurring role in, in that in that film. I mean, it's it's interesting because you know Heartbreakers is a movie, according to IMDb, about two single girls working the dating scene in Los Angeles, and there are these two women with bikinis on the cover, and you think, oh wow, it must have been so glamorous to be on that shoot. Um, but in fact, it sounds like uh, there were at least some parts of it that were unpleasant. I didn't see any bikini-clad girls in my scene. I, I don't think <laughs> I, I rarely see bikini. Well, in uh, Californication, I saw. Many bikini-clad girls, so I can't say. Yeah, but heartbreakers, no. That was a quick in and out, so they say. Yes, uh, that's that's an official industry term, I believe. I think so. Uh, in any case, Tobo, uh, something that I have observed recently, you know, something I've been doing is I have been uh, ripping movie commentaries. You know how like DVDs and Blu-rays have movie commentaries on them? Oh yeah. And I recently. Uh, have been putting those commentaries onto my phone and, and listening to them on my walks because I find that it's a lot easier for me to consume them when I can just walk around and listen to them versus I need to be sitting in front of a TV. And I was listening to the commentary for The Last Jedi, which is Star Wars Episode Eight, and director Ryan Johnson was saying how uh, Steve Yedlin, his director of photography, apparently they've been friends since like film school. And it uh, it struck me that like there's many people for whom they meet collaborators in like high school and film school, and these people are just with them for their entire lives, like making projects together. You know, like you you forge these bonds of friendship that just never get broken throughout their life. Um, have you ever experienced anything like that? Do you think that's something that's true? Like, that you, have you gotten a lot of collaborators from? Uh, people you met long time ago? I would guess it's probably more common than not. When I was studying acting in college, David, I always had the feeling that the people I was growing up with, like my roommate Jim McClure that I wrote about last year, uh, my teacher, my advisor, Bernard Hopgood, fellow students Pat Richardson, Kathy Bates, I thought they would be with me always. And (laughs) they were characters. I always had this movie going on in my head that had a title. I had a title for this film, and it was called My Life in the Theater. I walked across the SMU campus to class, talking to myself, thinking how the story of the day was shaping up. I would think, oh, hey, you know, this would make a very good episode in season one. Jim McClure and I meet. He's a jerk. We get drunk at the CPL, and we talk about acting and girls and our futures, and we become friends. Sophomore year, a.k.a. season two started off with a bang, with the introduction of two new characters, Joan Potter and Beth Henley. One I feared, one I loved. New characters kept being added. Powers Booth, Jack Clay, Ray Burke, John Arnone, Terry Vandervoort, Pick Ferguson, Vicki Jones, and Vicki Jones could sing. What a cast! 
And what is more remarkable than meeting all of these people is that they did become a part of the ongoing story of my life in the theater. And I'm not talking about the Tobolowsky Files. Tobolowsky Files is just my Talmud, a written commentary of the oral law. Most of the actors, directors, and teachers I encountered in college remained an important part of my life in graduate school in Illinois. Some reappeared through my struggles in Los Angeles, in New York, and the list of recurring characters keeps growing. Last year, I found out that Justina Machado, who I work with on One Day at a Time, was a student of Milton Katselis. Milton happened to be one of the most important acting teachers I ever had, even though I only had him for one day. In the summer of 1972, Hobb brought in several high-profile directors for a seminar. Being an academic, Hobb had to use Latin words whenever he could. He proudly announced that the lecture series was officially going to be called the Director's Colloquium. I asked Hobb what colloquium meant. He said, Tobo, it's just a singular form of colloquia. And that is why we loved Hobb. But the colloquium was no joke. The directors were some of the world's best. Joseph Anthony, Joseph Chaikin, Bill Ball of ACT, Adrian Hall of Trinity Rep, William Gaskell of the Royal Court Theatre in London. Now I wonder if actors today even know these names. They were brilliant. And they all made an impression, but the last director had the biggest impact on me, Milton Katselis. I think the colloquium only lasted for three weeks, I'm guessing. It felt like it lasted all summer. Hobb picked a company of eight actors, and several weeks before the colloquium began, Hobb assigned us several scenes, which we rehearsed on our own. Each morning of the colloquium, Hobb opened with some incomprehensible remarks, and then we presented a scene for the visiting director, after which we were torn to pieces. A group of about 50 teachers and directors paid to watch this. They took notes on how they could better destroy their young actors at their schools. Hobb picked Beth and me to be in the acting company. Now, at this point in our relationship, Beth and I had kissed. We shopped at garage sales together, and I watched her throw a pumpkin out of a fourth-floor dorm window. That was about it. Beyond that, our future was composed of more questions than answers perfect material for season three of my life in the theater. Milton Katselis wanted to see a scene that utilized lots of the acting company, so Hobb called for Romeo and Juliet. This scene had most of us in it. I played the old man, Juliet's father, Capulet. Alas, even when I was young, I played old men. Beth played Juliet. There was also the nurse, which is a very funny character, a couple of gentlemen who did nothing, and a soldier who did less. In the scene, I have to try to get Juliet to listen to me, but she's headstrong and she won't take my advice. Milton said, action, and we began. I used my old man walk, limping toward Juliet, using a walking stick. I began my opening speech using my old man voice, suddenly transitioning into my grumpy old man voice. Milton stopped us after a few lines, and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to get her to obey me. How? asked Milton. Um, I'm talking to her, I said. 
Yes, said Milton. I get that. We all get that. Is she listening? No, I said, and I was getting more insecure with each passing second. Well, do something about that, ordered Milton. So I grabbed Beth by the wrists, and I sat her down, and I kept talking, but Beth wouldn't have any of it. She jumped up and ran away. I stood there dumbfounded for a second, and Milton yelled out, So, what are you going to do now, Capulet? I chased Beth. That's right, yelled Milton. She won't hear you if she's in another room. So I ran, continuing to shout my lines as I chased Beth off the stage, through the audience, up a staircase, into the lighting booth, around the catwalks. Milton and the class were laughing and clapping. I kept chasing, trying to get my lines out. The chase was infectious. The nurse ran after me to make sure I didn't hurt Juliet. The gentleman and the soldier chased the nurse. All of us made it back to the stage by the end of the scene. We were totally winded. I collapsed on the floor, panting. I said my final lines, to which Beth stuck out her tongue, ran out of the theater to wild applause of the audience. Milton jumped up on stage and yelled, And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you direct Shakespeare. The class cheered. Milton continued, Never forget, what happens on this stage is life. 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 Always life. Actors think it's about words. Words are important, but they're only the channel. The conduit for the real thing. The hardest task for any actor to give him or herself is permission to live on stage. And I have to tell you, and Milton turned and pointed to me, I'm sorry, what's your name? Uh, Stephen, sir. Stephen Tobolowsky. At this point, I was even unsure of that. Stephen, remember, that's all we want. Life. Life is unpredictable. It's horrifying. It's beautiful. It's delightful. It's everything. And that was the only time in my life I saw Milton Katselis. Then I worked with Justina. I overheard her mention Milton at the snack table. And it all came back from 45 years ago. One of my favorite episodes of season three of my life in the theater. When I was 18, I consciously began constructing my inner monologue. I had no idea I was basing it on a surprising truism. As my dear, dear friend Bob Darnell used to say, there are only 16 people in the world, buddy, and all of them are friends. You will run into everyone again. Characters reappear. Joan Potter visited me in my dressing room on Broadway and attempted to steal my soul one more time. Powers Booth and I worked together on Deadwood over 20 years after we left school. Kathy Bates was the first Lenny in Beth's play Crimes of the Heart at the Actors Theater of Louisville, and Kathy and I have done two movies together. Pat Richardson has played my sister on Broadway and my wife on film. Now, I'm not sure if it's the same with other pursuits, but in the arts, the pool is small, but the pool is deep. Over the years, I've come to expect recurrent storylines. I shot the Country Bears in Los Angeles. On the set, I was working on my ongoing project of reading great books I should have read in college. I was in the middle of Charles Dickens' Bleak House. Dietrich Bader walked past me, saw the book cover, and screamed, Bleak House? Oh my God, the greatest book in the world! Where are you? 
I told him, and he shrieked, Oh, no, you have no idea what's about to happen next. Oh, man, oh, man, you are so lucky. I know we're just doing the country bears, and we're acting every day with a wall of fur, but you will always remember this as one of the greatest times in your life because you are reading this book. I still remember the first time I read it. I envy you, man. We'll talk when you're done. The shoot ended. We dispersed. I finished Bleak House. A few months later, I left for New York to work on a play. My first morning in Manhattan, I walk out of my hotel in search of breakfast, and there is Dietrich Bader walking in the opposite direction. We saw each other. We stopped. We screamed. We hugged. The first words out of Dietrich's mouth, So, did you finish the book? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Was I right? Oh, totally. We hugged again. New Yorkers on their way to work walked around us, looked back, smiling with curiosity. I bet if you were to ask a thousand people what caused this street scene, not one person would say Charles Dickens. Dietrich, this book, yeah, amazing, right? And how about the style? The first page is like something out of Hemingway. Dickens is so out there, and he can make the ordinary supernatural. Yes, I said, and he makes the supernatural ordinary. There are ghosts everywhere. Dietrich got a wild look in his eyes and whispered, Well, aren't there? Dietrich, you can't believe in ghosts unless you believe in a lot of other things. Like what? he asked. Well, that the end is not the end? That there's such a thing as fate? And despite our best efforts, we have no idea what's really going on. Dietrich laughed and said, well, count me in on that one, pal, but I'm an actor. I believe in everything. We walked, we talked, we relived our favorite moments, favorite characters, biggest laughs, most crushing heartbreaks. On our walk, Dietrich told me some bleak house trivia. He was at a dinner party with some hotshot television producers, Dietrich mentioned his love of Bleak House. As it turned out, they loved Bleak House, too. They told him how NBC had asked them for a detective mystery that was easy to shoot. They immediately thought of the Victorian mystery genre where murder is solved by a battle of wits, a brilliant detective against a diabolical villain. Most of the story is revealed through conversation rather than car chases. The two hotshot producers were Richard Levinson and William Link, and the show they came up with was Columbo. I stopped on the sidewalk as if I'd been hit by a falling air conditioner. What? I gasped. Yeah. Do you see it? Dietrich asked. Inspector Bucket, I said. Dietrich laughed. Yes, Inspector Bucket. Remember how he's described in the book, Beat Up Overcoat? Everybody thinks he's a rube, but he's a genius. At the end of every scene, he acts like he's leaving the room, but then he comes back with the, oh, sorry, one more thing. I said, with the raised forefinger. Yes, said Dietrich, always with the raised forefinger. And then he did a quick Peter Falk impression. I put the pieces together. So, Columbo is the child of Bleak House. Dietrich winked, and we went our separate ways. Recurring characters. The pool is small, but the pool is deep.
Of all the recurring characters that drifted in and out of my life, my old roommate Jim McClure was one of the constants. We were competitors, even though we never competed. Jim was always trying to get the big roles at SMU, and I was always trying to keep from getting thrown out of school. Jim and I took a road trip to do summer stock in New York, to be accurate, New York State, but we were only a few hours from Broadway. As soon as we got to the Forestburg Summer Theater, Jim dropped me and my suitcase off at the curb and left. I never knew why. We never discussed the subject again until two days before Jim died. When I got back from summer stock, there were no hard feelings. Jim and I continued our plans to start a theater in Dallas, a professional theater where actors, directors, designers, specifically from the SMU drama department, more specifically, Jim and me, could work until we decided if we were going to try to make it in New York or get a job at Neiman Marcus. There was a growing list of talented graduates that were willing to stay in Dallas if there were more opportunities. A group of us met with representatives of the mayor of Dallas about taking over the famous old bathhouse at White Rock Lake and turning it into a theater. After listening to various proposals, the mayor opted to give the property to the police who turned the bathhouse into a boxing ring for troubled teens. Sidebar. No comment on the boxing ring. I only boxed once in my life. It was at the YMCA. I was only seven or eight years old. I didn't know what I was doing. Neither did the kid I was boxing. The bell rang. I came out of my corner and pretended like I was in one of those Western movies in a saloon fight. I swung at the kid's head as hard as I could. He didn't know how to bob, weave, or run away. And my fist hit him right in the middle of his face and his head exploded. There was blood everywhere. He started crying. I started crying. That was the end of my boxing career. I could understand how forcing troubled teens to box could be a disagreeable experience. It could turn them into troubled adults or into theater majors. A sidebar to the addendum, the one thing people don't understand about theater, it is not for the weak. Work days easily become work nights. You have to master several jobs to make anything happen. You have to be able to do manual labor, carpentry, electrical, sewing, and lighting. You have to know literature, history, art, and design. And you have to be fearless about everything while understanding that nothing you're doing is really important. The mayor made the right choice. Anyone can fight. Almost no one could do theater. Most of the best of SMU's drama school ended up choosing New York. Even Jim McClure left. He headed for the Upper West Side along with Greg Grove, Gary Roberts, Kathy Bates, Pat Richardson. Their dream was Broadway. Beth and I also dreamed of being babes on Broadway, but we ended up going 3,000 miles in the other direction. We chose Los Angeles. Jim called me up from his new apartment on 85th and Columbus. Potays! You can't say it's so! You can't go to L.A.! Footnote, Potays, or Potesi, was Jim's new nickname for me. It came from an art history class we took together. The Potesi was a sort of priest in ancient Mesopotamia. He considered himself the source of all knowledge, almost a god. Jim didn't mean this as a compliment. Potays! 
You and Beth are voluntarily going to a cultural wasteland. You're theater people. They don't have theater in L.A. They don't even have dinner theater there. They may not even have puppet theater. Jim, New York is as close as a plane ticket. Yeah, but you won't be here. You won't know what's coming or what's going. Jim, I promise you if I ever get an agent and that agent ever gets me an audition in New York, I will be there. Beth and I didn't choose L.A. for artistic reasons. We thought it would be a nicer place to be poor. It's much better to be miserable in sunshine. And I think we were right. When I was in college, I was certain I would end up in New York. Whenever I could, I would make little trips to see shows and get the lay of the land. On one of these visits, I looked at potential apartments. I found one. Midtown. $300 a month. It was a 10 by 10 foot room with a bed and a chest of drawers. I asked the landlord where the bathroom was. He said I could probably use the toilet in the bar across the street. Compare and contrast. In West Hollywood, for $425 a month, I found a 100-year-old two-bedroom house on Hayworth Street. An entire house with a toilet and a sink and a tub and a shower. The house had a front and a backyard with a swing on the front porch. It had a built-in pie cooler in the kitchen if we ever had pie. The entire house was furnished with 100-year-old furniture, some of which was beautiful, some of which was just 100 years old. One of the pieces of 100-year-old furniture was a beautiful, out-of-tune, upright piano. It was a sign. I was inclined to take the place then and there. The only negatives were that some of the features of the house had not been updated. And these were pretty important features. The house had no heat. The kitchen had a gas stove with no thermostat, just fire. Theoretically, you could put something you wanted to cook in the oven, turn on a spigot, and hand light the gas. Usually there was a small explosion, depending on how much gas escaped. On more than one occasion, I singed the hair off of my arm. The landlady provided us something called a bimetallic strip that people must have used during the Bronze Age to regulate the temperature of stoves like this. Off the kitchen at the back of the house was a screened-in porch with a small refrigerator and a hand-cranked wash tub. The realtor laughed and said, I would be living in an actual museum. I appreciated her desperation. I didn't want to tip my hand that she already had me with running water. Beth and I weren't domestic. We didn't cook. We didn't wash our clothes. And we probably would only use the refrigerator for beer. I rented the house while Beth was out of town. I had faith she would like it. She had very low standards. And I was right. Beth loved the house. She was captured by the romance of the place. The living room had built-in bookcases and a big wood-burning fireplace. She said that would give us all the heat we needed, and on really cold nights we could light the gas in the kitchen. Beth said that now she had decided to be a writer, she needed a place to write. I showed her a built-in pull-down desk in the living room by the fireplace. No, 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 no. Beth thought that was too conventional. She claimed the area the real estate lady called the breakfast nook to be her office. And that was fine with me. 
I went into the breakfast nook once and almost never got out. The breakfast nook featured two built-in benches connected to a built-in table, but it was all constructed to a scale I hadn't seen since preschool. It was all so tiny. I don't think there was room for a full-sized adult. I don't even think there was room for a full-sized breakfast. But as it happened, it was just right for one Beth Henley, one typewriter, and one bagel. In the spirit of the California gold rush, I felt like I needed to claim an area to be my office. So I picked the swing on the front porch. Oh, how many days and evenings did I spend on that swing watching the world go by? Occasionally I'd read a book, or I'd play Scrabble with my dear, dear friend Bob. In the evenings I opened our front door and rocked while I listened to David Bowie or Bruce Springsteen on the record player. If I ever felt I needed to do something constructive, I smoked what my friend claimed to be marijuana and watched cars drive up and down our street. As evening turned into night, the street lights came on creating pools of orange, and there was such a feeling of reassurance when a star would emerge from the haze or through the branches of the big trees in front of our house. What still fascinates me about this time and that house, and especially that swing, is that even though I had no career, no agent, no prospects, I did children's theater, Beth did nothing until she got a job at a dog food factory, even though we had no discernible future, I never wished I had more. Sidebar, that wasn't always true. A couple years later, I became very depressed. I felt like every dream I had was dying. I reached a point where I understood the line of Masha's from Chekhov's The Seagull when she's asked, why are you always wearing black? And she replies, I'm in mourning for my life. Jack Clay taught us that this exchange was an example of Chekhov's humor. Two years after I arrived in Los Angeles, I was prepared to respectfully disagree. I don't think the line was meant to be funny. I suspect that Chekhov wasn't speaking as a writer, but as a physician. As a doctor, he had seen this symptom arise mysteriously in young and old, rich and poor. It was a disease that had no name, but nonetheless could rob those afflicted of strength, humor, and hope. But I didn't feel that way in 1976. When I got to Los Angeles, no, 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 no. I would go back in my mind again and again and try to understand how my joy could vanish in such a short amount of time. The only theory I have is that when I arrived in Hollywood and rented the house on Hayworth and had a job in children's theater and knew Beth was going to join me, I felt like I had enough. Feeling like you have enough has almost nothing to do with having enough. My children's theater job paid $120 to $240 a week, depending on how many shows we did. That's, what, $500 to $800 a month? At this point in time, it was the most money I had ever made as an actor. But it was enough to cover the rent, with a little money left over for beer, and to occasionally go out and have Mexican food at the compost heap. My job rarely took more than half a day, and that gave me time. Time to listen to records, time to read Moby Dick. I bought a book of piano music, 50 favorite classic pieces. I practiced on my out-of-tune piano whenever the spirit moved me. 
There were two jade plants on either side of the front porch. Every morning I had my coffee on my swing and watched the jade plants, and occasionally a hummingbird would watch them too. I had never seen a hummingbird before. Atheists will always be at a disadvantage. They have to hope quantum physics can eventually prove that something can come from nothing. If you believe in God, the only proof you need is a hummingbird. That first winter, the jade plants started to bloom. I had no idea anything bloomed in winter. I felt like I had miracles at my doorstep. My best friend Bob lived across the street. I could talk to him about anything. We played Scrabble and drank whiskey in the afternoon. He had a 30-foot orange tree outside his front door. He'd say, Stephen, come on over any time and bring a basket. I suspect seeing a world of bounty from my swing was not merely a product of my optimism. It was more of a benign aspect of my mental condition. All of us see the world through the dual lens of fact and delusion. Children see monsters in their closets. Adults think black is slimming. When I moved to Los Angeles, this condition enabled me to see everything around me as new, not only new, but made for my benefit. My world was like my book of 50 favorite classical pieces. Even if I played every note correctly on my piano, the song would still be out of tune. And that's what made it so beautiful. My love of playing didn't come from being perfect. It came from knowing the perfect would never be possible. Maybe that's why I never tried to find a piano tuner. I called Jim in New York, told him about our new beautiful 100-year-old house. Oh, Jim, it's great, and we have a spare bedroom. If you ever come to Los Angeles, Beth and I are calling it the Jim Room. Well, 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 I am truly touched, Pates. Yeah, our realtor says we're like living in a museum. We have a swing on the front porch and a pie cooler in the kitchen. Uh, what's a pie cooler? I'm not sure, Jim, but it's cool. Well, how do you know it's cool if you don't know what it is? No, Jim, I don't mean it's cool as in it's groovy. I mean it's cool as in it's not hot. There's a breeze inside there. A breeze? Yeah, Jim, it's like a tall, skinny closet in the kitchen that has no bottom with shelves that aren't really shelves, just slats of wood, and cool air always blows up from under the house. Wow, so I guess that's how your pies get cooled? I guess, Jim. So are you planning on eating more pie? Jim asked. Well, it's on the list. I made an apple pie for Beth last year. It was good, but it was very labor-intensive. Not sure I could do that again. Well, we all have our limits, Patese. So the pie cooler is just part of the museum at this point? Well, not completely, I said. The house doesn't have air conditioning, so when it gets too hot, I stick my head in the pie cooler. Oh, just like in Pioneer Days. Well, Patese, sounds like you found a little slice of heaven. I'm looking forward to the day when I could stay in the gym room. Well, it's waiting for you, Rumi. It's all waiting for you. The screen door slams, Mary's dress waves. Like a vision, she dances across the porch as the radio plays. 
Roy Orbison singing for the lonely Hey, that's me and I want you only Don't turn me home again I just can't face myself alone again The gym room was a hot commodity. It came into immediate demand, not by Jim McClure, but by Jim McGrath. Jim McGrath was another recurring character that figured prominently into the first several seasons of my life in the theater. Jim was a star actor at Jesuit High School. He was a killer in speech tournaments, especially in dramatic interpretation. Jim knew me from speech tournaments in high school as a debater. When we arrived at the SMU Drama Department, we were unified by an even greater force. Jim and I always got cast as spear carriers. This was a fall from grace very few people at our young age get to experience. We went from being stars at our respective high schools to having no lines and wearing loincloths in college. The odds are good that when you wear a loincloth, you will probably also have to wear body paint. McGrath and I were sponge partners. I did his back, he did mine. You learn a lot from a man when you have to cover his back in tan number two with a sponge the size of an English muffin. It's a lot of real estate. It takes time, and you have to make sure there are no streaks. Jim and I talked. I learned about his family, his dreams, his loves, and he learned about mine as well. He was one of the first people I shared that I had a growing romantic feeling toward Beth. Jim came to Los Angeles with a project. He wanted us to write a screenplay. And we did. Nails, Gregan, and the Lady of the Lake. It was the story of a private eye with narcolepsy who ends up on the trail of what may be a ghost. I mean, it was a real page-turner. Jim stayed back in the gym room. We wrote during the day. And when we finished writing, we sat in my office on the front porch swing and smoked what a friend of mine told me was marijuana. If we really wanted to celebrate, we went to the compost heap for margaritas and chicken enchiladas. Those were the golden days. And what was better? We sold the screenplay. Amazing. $3,500. Unbelievable. Jim and I did plays together. We were best of friends. Until we weren't. And it happened in an instant. It was when Beth and I broke up. I moved out of the house on the hill to a smaller house on a different hill. And Jim called me. And I remember our last phone call. It was at the new home. It was so good to hear his voice. He offered his sympathy. He said he thought that Beth and I were the one couple that would probably last forever. I said, well, I guess we weren't. And Jim said, Tobo, I want you to know this won't affect our friendship. Just know. I love you, man. I am here for the whole ride. And the whole ride ended with that phone call. I never knew why. I don't think Jim had any hard feelings toward me. It was just one of those Omar Khayyam moments. You know, the moving finger writes and the having writ moves on. At least that Omar is better than the flower that once has blown forever dies. That's it's really hardcore Omar. Once McGrath left the gym room and got his own apartment, Jim McClure started coming to Los Angeles with more frequency. And just like McGrath, McClure was drawn to Los Angeles not as an actor, but as a writer. Sidebar. In retrospect, I find it odd that Beth, Jim McGrath, Jim McClure, all actors, 
became writers of varying degrees in Los Angeles, the cultural wasteland. Maybe it's evidence that inspiration is rarely a case of where you are, but who you are. Around this time, either a mistake or a miracle occurred. Something called World Airlines came into being. The airline only made three stops, L.A., New York, and Hawaii, and a ticket cost $99. $99. At that price, I could be bi-coastal. I went to New York once a month. I saw plays. I walked in Central Park. And I saw all of my old friends from school. Jim McClure always offered me the Tobo couch to sleep on. It was New York. You take what you can get. On one trip, Jimmy told me I couldn't stay with him. His new girlfriend was back in town and was staying over. Girlfriend? I hadn't heard about a girlfriend. Jim had several girlfriends in college. All of them were very special people. But he never seemed to end up with one person in a long-term relationship like a lot of us did at that time in our lives. Patays, why don't you come on over tonight and meet her? I filled her in on all of your pertinent details, your love of Godzilla, your hygiene, and of course, the pie cooler. That night, I showed up at Jim's. We were going out to dinner, and then I would go home with Greg and sleep on the Tobo floor. For some reason, the living room was dark, except for one reading light over by the couch. There was a young woman sitting by the lamp, looking through a book. Jim hugged me. Good to see you, Patays. We're just waiting on Grove and Margot. Then you up for Hunan tonight? I made a reservation. Why you go over and say hello to Sigourney? So I walked over to the woman, extended my hand. Hello, um, Sigourney, is, is that right? She looked up at me and smiled. Good heavens. It was the face of an angel. Yes, she said as she extended her hand. And you are, and she scrunched up her face as if she were repeating a name in an exotic, unfamiliar language. You are Tobo? Yes, yes. Well, my name is Stephen Tobolowski. People call me Tobo for short. Well, my friends call me Tobo. She smiled again and said, then I'll call you Tobo. You were Jim's roommate at SMU? Yes, yes. For the longest year of my life, we never washed our sheets. I know, Sigourney said. Yes, he told me. Well, it was not because we were animals. We kept getting cast in shows where we had to wear body paint. Jim had real parts with lines. I was usually holding some kind of spear, but either way, it made washing the sheets futile. Sigourney smiled. Well, that's a life in the theater. Yes. Yes, Sigourney. That's exactly what it was, a life in the theater. So what do you do? How, how did you two meet? I'm an actor, she said. Oh, oh. So were you two working on a play together? Sigourney smiled shyly. Not yet. Soon, I hope. Jim said you just got back in town. Were you doing anything fun? I, w- I was working on a movie, just finishing it up. Oh, movie? Well, that sounds like fun. I was in Canada. It's a science fiction film. I was thinking, oh, this is so sad. Doing a science fiction movie in Canada? They always shoot cheap sci-fi movies in Canada, and they pay the actors next to nothing because they could avoid the unions. Uh, What's the movie called? She said, Alien. Oh, this was so pathetic. The movie didn't even have a real title. Alien. Huh. Oh, well, you have to start somewhere, I guess. 
Well, Sigourney, that sounds exciting. I love space movies. Is it going to be released in the United States? I think so, said Sigourney. I hope so. Greg and Margot showed up, and we went out to eat spicy Chinese at the Hunan Palace. I had to give Jim a thumbs up on Sigourney. She seemed like a dear spirit, sweet, sincere. I went back to Los Angeles and back to my daily grind of children's theater, singing about Sacagawea and telling the history of Spaniards in California with hand puppets. The best part of the job was that our cast of three, Rick Fitz, Jenny Gago, and I, carpooled. On the way home from middle school, we were driving through Westwood, and there was Alien! It was opening day at the Avco. I go, hey guys, that's Sigourney's movie. Alien, it got released in America. I have to see it. Well, we finished early. It was just about noon, and Rick said, well, I have nothing to do this afternoon. Why don't we go see it now? Fine with me, said Jenny. And the three of us walked into the nearly empty theater for the early show. I told Rick and Jenny how Sigourney is dating my old roommate. I promised her I would see the movie if it ever played in L.A. I think she played some kind of space girl. It should be fun. The lights of the theater dimmed. Oh. My. God. What the. Get me out of here. And this was just the credits. This movie needed more than a warning. It needed an entire battery of psychological tests before you bought a ticket. The film caused major mental damage. Jenny had to wait in the lobby after the credits. She said she would just eat popcorn until the movie was over. Unfortunately, she came back to check in on us just before the pop out of the chest moment. She started crying and ran back to the lobby. I couldn't. By now, I had lost feeling in the lower part of my body. But I sensed I was sitting in a puddle of drool. And Sigourney became a star. Over the next several years, Sigourney became a welcome reoccurring character at our little house on Hayworth. I have rarely met anyone with the dedication to acting that she has, and to the theater. Sigourney never took anything for granted. She always worked harder than anyone. Her great heart and her great sense of humor made her a star in my book. She would sit on my front porch swing in my office and try to encourage me in my non-existent career. But I always felt hopeful after seeing her. A lot of good things happened on that front porch swing. I guess that was to be expected. I've always been a nature boy. You know, recurring themes. They reveal one's inclinations. They also highlight inconsistencies. Deviations from the norm are also important. They reveal one's mysteries. In this case, the mystery was the backyard at Hayworth. After we moved in, I never went out there. It was inexplicable considering my love of the outdoors. I always loved yards, especially backyards. But I had a feeling of dread about this yard, and I didn't want to challenge it. One day I did. After my children's shows, instead of playing Scrabble with Bob, I decided to explore. I walked down the rickety wooden steps of the back porch. There in front of me was the dilapidated wooden garage. Just from the outside, it looked like the kingdom of the spiders, so I left it for another day. The yard was lovely. It was a sizable plot of grass mixed with clover. An unkempt ten-foot hedge ran from the garage, across the back of the yard, intersecting with our neighbor's ten-foot hedge that ran along the border of their property. 
This was a lot of yard for Los Angeles, even back in 1976. I headed back indoors. I stopped, took another look at my new world, and something caught my attention. Beyond the back hedge was the top of an oak tree. I walked toward the garage to inspect the tree from another angle. I slipped through a break in the hedge and discovered that behind our backyard was a whole other backyard. It was a secret garden with the oak tree standing at the center. And it remained a secret. I didn't tell Beth that night. The next day after work, I dragged one of the 100-year-old dining room chairs outside and set it under the oak tree. I sat and observed. The secret garden did not bring me a sense of peace like the swing on the front porch. There was no lawn, no clover. The area was predominantly weeds and scrub brush surrounded by the claustrophobic hedge. The oak tree looked like it was from the scary forest in a Grimm's fairy tale. There were no hummingbirds. I wondered if I could wrestle the secret garden to my will. I called the owner of the house, Elizabeth and her husband. They were in their 80s. Their permanent address was somewhere in Northern California, but they spent most of their time driving around the state in a trailer. I was lucky to catch her at home. I asked if I could make some changes to the backyard. She asked what I had in mind. I said, maybe I could do some weeding, some watering, planting. She laughed and said, why, of course, Stephen. I'm afraid 835 Hayworth has never had the touch of a green thumb. Plant something that will make the yard as special as the house. I will. The next day, I started weeding the back 40. I bought planting mix and fertilizer. I bought zucchini seeds and tomato seeds and carrot seeds and two rose bushes with no knowledge as to what could grow under an oak tree. I finished my work. I'm pretty sure that moment marked the beginning of when everything I planted started to die. Some wildness cannot be contained. The job required more energy and know-how than I possessed. I visited every other day to water the roses, check for sprouting seeds. I never got over my sense of uneasiness in the secret garden. But my labors made the uneasiness more familiar and eventually more inviting. When Beth and I moved to Los Angeles, we had two friends, T-Bone and Betty. They were actors, very, very good actors we knew in Dallas. We were determined to stick together through thick and thin. Most of the time it was thin, but in the words of Bob Dylan, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. We found comfort in the fact that we all had the same complaint. We had no future. When you're going nowhere, it's much better to do it with friends. It feels less like you're cursed and more like you're part of a trend. Friday nights, we drank beer and ate Mexican food. On beer runs to the 7-Eleven, T-Bone and I used to stop at the magazine rack and look at pictures of naked women. Sort of. You see, in the 1970s, there was an explosion of magazines that featured naked women. T-Bone and I, we bypassed all the top titles, Playboy, Penthouse, Hustler, Club, Gent, for something called Easy Rider. Easy Rider is a motorcycle magazine for serious motorcycle people, like Hell's Angels kind of people. The women in the centerfolds were more modestly photographed, usually topless wearing a biker helmet or a bandana or an eye patch. I suspected they were selected for their tattoos as much as their other virtues. 
The magazine had a joke section with jokes like, What is the last thing that goes through a bug's mind when it hits your windshield? It's ass. They had articles about carburetors, what to ask a lawyer when you're arrested for drunk and disorderly. I started buying Easy Rider, not for the naked women or for the Harley ads, but because it was the only magazine I'd ever seen that had an obituary section for its subscribers. They had postings for about a dozen unfortunates every month, like, Here's to Cubby Bear, shot in the back by a coward at the Cowboy Lounge in Seal Beach. Don't you worry, bro. We'll take care of that clown. Love and peace to you, man. May you always be riding the open roads of heaven. Beth was opposed to my looking at Easy Rider. She said the magazine was for tough boys, and I wasn't a tough boy, even if I wore a sleeveless T-shirt. She said I would always be a boy with piano hands. I found this both true and insulting, so I kept buying Easy Rider in spite of her opposition. One afternoon, I was swinging in my office, finishing up an obit in Easy Rider. I was enjoying the perfect balance of elements. The sun had set, but there was still light. The night was warm, but the air was cool. I was listening to Thunder Road on the turntable inside, smoking something that smelled like marijuana. As I exhaled, a voice broke my peace. Great song! I looked up from my magazine, and a blonde man in his late 20s, early 30s, was standing on the sidewalk in front of our house. Yeah, yeah, it's hard not to like Bruce, I said. I'm with you on that one. The man started walking towards the porch. Did you see him last year in Santa Barbara? No, no, I said, I just got in town this summer. He sniffed at the air and smiled, pointed at the joint in my hand. Hey, what do you have there? What? Seems like you're smoking something interesting. I'm LAPD, plain clothes. He opened up his jacket and flashed a badge. I almost dropped dead. The man starts laughing. (laughs) Hey, man, just kidding, just kidding, I'm your neighbor. He opened up his jacket again and pointed at the badge. Department of Water and Power. It's a bad joke. I know I should quit doing it, but it's just so damn funny. He walked up onto the porch and shook my hand. My name's Mark. Stephen, I said. Hey, good to meet you, Stephen. I I live in the apartment building next door, so I thought I'd come by, say hello. I've enjoyed your taste in music. Oh, Mark, I'm sorry. I'm hoping it's not too loud for you. No, no, no. No, I loved it. He reached for the reefer. Uh, may I? Oh, sure, Mark. Sorry. I handed him the joint. Mark took a deep drag. Yeah, nice to have people here in the neighborhood that aren't a thousand years old. Welcome to the block, man. Thank you, Mark. Have you lived here long? Mark handed the joint back to me. Eh, Just a couple years. Are you an actor, I asked. Mark laughed in an explosion of smoke. (laughs) What? Me? Hey, do I look like an actor? Mark posed with an overly huge smile and batted his hazel eyes. I laughed and said, I guess that's a no. That is a big no, bro. I am a lineman for the county, Mark sang a la Glenn Campbell. You're a lineman? Sad but true. When you see those guys in the yellow overalls on the power pole, that's me. Oh, so you have a real job, I said. Mark laughed again. Oh, yeah, very real. Well, I don't know anything about linemen. What, what do you do? Well, said Mark, whenever a power line is down, I get the call. That means I work all hours, day and night. But I gotta say, it always seems to be at night. And if there's a thunderstorm, I will probably be out there. And I hate that.
Big storms? One wrong move and you're a crispy critter. I laughed. Mark, this is why I've tried to avoid having a real job. I'm an actor, also known as unemployed. Hey, man, better be unemployed than hanging off a 60-foot ladder in a storm, said Mark. He bent down and looked at my magazine. Wow, easy rider. Cool. You ride? No. Hey, you sure you don't have a chopper out back? No, no chopper. I just, I, I like the articles. I passed the joint. Mark took a hit and looked at me, smiling. Man, I hate to be rude, but is this weed weed? I laughed and go, well, probably not. I should have I warned you. I bought it from a friend. I know it's not very good. Not very good. It tastes like oregano. Now I want to eat spaghetti. We laughed and fell into a silence. We watched a car cruise slowly down the street. Mark smiled and quietly said, now there goes the real plain clothes. Really? I asked. Yeah. A lot more action on this street in the last year. A lot of trash hanging out at 7-Eleven. There have been robberies. A lot more people smoking grass. Mark looked at me and winked. So, tell me, what are you burying in the backyard? Huh? Mark sat on the swing next to me. My place is right above your garage, and I say you dig in there like all day, man. Oh, I was just cleaning up a little, you know, planting something nice. Well, can I see? Mark asked. I was surprised, but I said, sure, sure, come on. We got up and walked around the side of the house, down the driveway, to the backyard. Mark looked around and said, hey, it's nice, quiet. He walked toward the hedge. He turned and pointed to the apartment building. Now look up there. You see up there, right there? That's my window. If you ever want to come up, listen to music, maybe have a little tequila. Well, thanks, Mark. Sure. So what's back here? Mark pointed toward the hedge. That's what I call the secret garden. That's what I was trying to tame. I cleared out some weeds, planted some zucchini, couple roses. Oh, roses. That's nice. Mark worked his way through the break in the hedge. I followed. He walked to the base of the oak tree and looked up into the branches. Wow, it's a big tree. And I like the hedge. You're cut off from everything. I wonder if you could see the stars from back here. Well, i never been out here at night. But just then, I saw a tiny point of light becoming visible through the evening haze. Hey, Mark, look up there. You think that's Venus? Mark shrugged. Hey, whatever you say. I don't know about anything higher than a 60-foot ladder. Mark checked his watch. Well, neighbor, nice to meet you. Gotta go. I'm on call tonight. Gotta go home and get loaded. You get drunk before you go to work? Oh, yeah. Makes hanging off of a power pole a lot more fun. Later. Mark left. I didn't go back inside. I stayed in the secret garden. I wanted to see if any spirits, good or evil, materialized under the oak tree at night. Nothing. Just a slight change in the air. Oh, I could smell my dying roses. Sweet. Made me feel like all of my efforts weren't in vain. As if on cue, chirping started. Everywhere. I didn't know if it was crickets or tree frogs. Either way, it was nice to feel like I was part of something bigger than myself. Sunset was gracefully becoming night. Several stars made their presence known. Then a light broke the growing darkness. It came from the apartment building next door. 
from the window above my garage. There was movement. The blinds were pushed aside. It was Mark. He looked down toward my secret garden. I don't think he saw me. He looked down at my backyard for a moment. Then the blinds swayed back into place, and he was gone. You chose a turn back Riding on a wet night Neath the refinery's glow I wear the great black river's pole License registration That was The Recurring Character, a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, uh, this isn't what I would describe as a cliffhanger, but it is a two-parter, right? Next week's episode is going to have a continuation of this. It is a continuation of enormous creepiness. Yeah. <laughs> that's something. That's your specialty, as far this, as I understand. This is a true story, and I was debating, should I, should I do this story? Because... Uh, for me, it was very scary, a very scary situation that I ended up in, and uh, I'm glad I'm here to tell about it. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. This episode was powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is the first and last word in podcast management and analytics. If you're thinking of starting your own show, uh, if you like how this one sounds and looks on the internet, check out simplecast.com. Uh, if you're looking for more of my work, David Chen, uh, you can find my stuff. I, I'm doing another podcast called Culturally Relevant, which features interviews of people that are not as interesting as Stephen, but sometimes it gets close. <laughs> and in the meantime, if you want video versions of these stories, Stephen, where can people go for that? <laughs> I know you're trying to test me. You're trying to test me because I can't remember this, but it's youtube.com slash Tobofiles. <laughs> YouTube.com slash Tobofiles, where we are going to have some live versions of Stephen's stories there for your consumption. Subscribe, check it out, watch, hit like, hit subscribe, hit the bell icon, all that stuff. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with a brand new series of stories from Stephen Tobolowsky. Adios. Stop.